to Moving Forward with Young Voices here on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. And we're pleased to welcome Ariana Wolday. She is a UK contributor to Young Voices. And Ariana, could I ask you, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Hi, um, so I'm from London and I'm a contributor for Young Voices UK. I'm the founder of a little Instagram page called Off Topic Politics. I'm a senior researcher for Elevation Policy Limited, which is a student think tank that just was recently set up. So we're still producing a series of reports and I, I write articles on China. So that is a bit about me. There's a subject that I don't know with, you know, with all the, the COVID craziness going on around the world. Yeah. I guess it's easy to lose sight, but uh, keeping an eye on China and the relationships of these other countries with China. President Biden made a comment about two weeks ago that really grabbed my attention. I've not seen any news stories since uh, he made this comment, but he said something about um, we need to be prepared for another world war, possibly against a, not just a small country, but a, but a, a world power. As a result of a cyber attack. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty direct language. And so yeah, very there's, there, there's been some talk about, well, you know, Russia has hacked in and they've they they've been accused of several cyber attacks. What about China? Is, is there a danger of, of cyber war between the U.S. and China? I mean, I think cyber war is inherently danger, dangerous for everybody involved. It's not like traditional warfare have a clear winner and a and a clear loser there are so many different actors whether it's the state themselves or you know little independent hacker organizations that it's just impossible to come out completely unscathed so i wouldn't necessarily be worried about a, an all-out war between the us and china but actually just chaos all around the world with all of the major actors within cyberspace so currently that would be the us china and russia so you can imagine that is pretty scary but it's also pretty preventable and that is what i think cyber policy in the U.S. should be focused on, not preparing for war, but preventing war. Okay, and I, I love that you made the distinction there between, you know, preparing, you know, gearing up, building the fortifications. Yeah, what can it's a, too early for that, yeah. What can a nation do to prevent cyber warfare? Um, I think the typical or the most obvious way to prepare for war is actually to just boost up your own national security. And that's something that both China and the U.S. have put a lot of resources and a lot of time into. But actually, there is one area that they have neglected. And I think it is that particular area that is the most important in preventing an all-out cyber war. And that is good old-fashioned diplomacy. And now, for some reason, this is something that has seemed to be the door of, I don't know, the 19-somethings. It's talking and, and sitting down and having rational conversation is not something that soundbite culture in politics today wants to make room for, but it's something that has to return in order to prevent this cyber war that we all fear. And I was very pleased actually to see last week the meetings in Tianjin between these are formal high-level meetings, the second since Joe Biden actually became president between the US and China. It was all arranged really last minute um, and China was at first quite reluctant to, to be there, but they participated. And although 
the conclusion was that no progress was made, it, it does show an effort, at least on the behalf of the US, to actually try and maintain that engagement with China and to make sure that tensions don't go from bad to worse. So I think whilst the, the intent is there, even though you know you have a lot of the headlines saying Biden is kind of rallying the allies up for war, the big democracies against the autocracies of the world, I think actually he, he still does understand the importance of negotiation and diplomacy. And he might not have quite grasped it yet, but I, I'm quite hopeful that that understanding will come. Help us understand the um, the vulnerabilities. If if nations are engaging in cyber warfare, where are people most likely to to feel that or to see that? Um, just as we've seen with the recent SolarWinds hack and the Microsoft hack that's been dominating the headlines, it's in infrastructure, and the U.S. is, is so incredibly reliant upon their internet infrastructure that that is where where they are most vulnerable. And in a world where we're all increasingly interconnected by this infrastructure, not just the US, that that is where we're going to feel it the most. And that's both the government, it's private businesses, it's individuals. We're all very much entangled within this war, even though we didn't sign up for it. So could it conceivably upset financial markets, um, delivery systems? Yes, of course. And I think actually the economics of it all is something that that is integral to this when we're talking about China, because like I said, unlike traditional warfare, where it's all kind of about the militarization and and the military strategy, actually for China, it's not about that at all. It's all about the economics. And that's something I think that the US is still coming to terms with. Um, So you have, for example, the China's National Defense of a New Era white paper, which was released in 2019, which puts a very heavy emphasis, not just on national, national security, but also so national development and economic development in particular. Um, you have the ex, I think it was assistant director of the counterintelligence services of the FBI, um, Bill Priestap, who said something really quite striking, which was that China t- has taken the lessons of Cold War of the Cold War and the standoff between the Soviet Union, Union and the US. And it's that actually economic strength is the foundation of national power. And that's something that has been consistent with not just Chinese politics today, but actually throughout the entire history of the CCP. Um, if you look back to, to its origin, it, it might have started with that kind of Marxist-Leninist ideology, uh, and that might have continued all throughout the time that Mao was in power. But actually, the ideology ha- has shifted quite dramatically from Mao to Deng Xiaoping to, to Xi Jinping. You've gone from uh, that kind of communist, really being entrenched within that communist ideology to, to one that kind of tolerates it uh, uh, on an image basis, but actually has reverted quite drastically to state capitalism. So the reason that that is, is because actually this this image of economic strength, whatever, um, despite whatever means you might be wanting to go about it, is so fundamental to uh, the to the very existence of the CCP. If you don't have the economic strength, it, it won't survive. And that's something that all the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party have understood. So despite their differing ideologies, they've all made a considerable effort to, to maintain that emphasis on economics. And that in itself provides an, an opening, I suppose, for, for diplomatic talks. If the US can engage with China, not, not on an ideological level, not on a military level, um, but on a level of actually appealing to their ac- economic ambitions, you're going to find um, a position where, where we can actually have very constructive talks. 
I have heard over the last probably 10 years that uh, there's a, a type of economic warfare going back and forth. And it's a trade war, I guess would be another way of putting yes. it, between the U.S. and China. Um, to what extent is there a trade war? And is, is it something that could boil over into other areas? I mean, I think that is the big question on everybody's mind. Since the transition from power from Trump to Joe Biden, it was kind of expected that actually a lot of the sanctions that were kind of just whimsically imposed as political um just political gestures would kind of be gradually started to, to scale back. Um, but actually, to much to the CCP surprise, as well as the rest of the world, those sanctions, a lot of them have very much still remained in place. And in fact, we've had extra additional ones been, been put on as this tension has continued to escalate. So I think that could offer another incentive for the US to actually want to make amends with China in terms of minimizing the economic impact on both them and themselves and the global economy as a whole, given how intertwined we all are. Well, I'm grateful that there are people like yourself who are paying close attention to this and and spreading the news about it. Uh, Talk about uh, some of the things that you have written or some of the resources that you might point people toward if they want to learn more. Um, I think Tony Sage recently, uh, he's a Harvard professor, actually, recently released a book called um, From Rebels to, to Rulers. And it's a hundred year history of the CCP. And I think actually a lot of people in the West don't actually take the time to try and understand the, the cultural and the political roots of the party, which is so fundamental to Chinese foreign policy and, and obviously Chinese domestic policy. So I think just trying to tap into that history and understand that perspective is a really good place to begin. Okay. And do you, do you, uh, are you on Twitter? Is there a place where people can follow you on Twitter, for instance? Yes, my Twitter is Ariana Walday. So just my name. And, and you can find me on there. And also Off Topic Poll is another Twitter handle for, for my social initiative. Very good. Ariana, it was very nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being our guest on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, we will take a very quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments with our latest guest. Please stay with us.